Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. The word of the Lord. Good morning. So my name is, my name is George, and I'm, uh, as Gil said, I'm an elder here. Apparently I'm not the um, kind and compassionate looking one, but I can deal, I can deal with that. <laughs> I'll have to have a chat later, Gil. Um, so I'm honored and excited to be uh, sharing the gospel with you today. Um, it's actually taken me uh, almost two months to prepare for this sermon. And um, so I was doing some math yesterday, and that works out at about six sermons a year for me if I uh, continue doing it. And then I was thinking, you know, if every pastor or preacher took that long each time, we'd need about nine pastors for this church. So um, it's given me a new appreciation for what Ryan does uh, week in and week out for this church. So um, let's keep them in our thoughts as they're taking some much-needed time um, away over the next week. So what drives people to obey? What motivates them to do as they're told in their workplaces, homes, and in society? And why should we obey and allow ourselves to be under the authority of others, especially when people can and do so easily abuse the authority given to them? These are the questions that we're going to talk about today and see what Paul has to say about them. So a few years ago, me and Amanda, we had a dog. Uh, her name was Daisy. She was a runner, a hunting dog, and she needed to be unleashed to set, and set free to sprint and run and explore and chase. This is her. Um, the exercise was great for her. She loved it, and um, it was exactly what she needed, but it was extremely frustrating for us. Uh, and that was because once she was unleashed, it was impossible to get her to come back to us. She only came back when she was ready. So we decided to invest in some obedience training. And honestly, after a few sessions, we thought we'd nailed it. Uh, with a handful of treats as a motivator, Daisy was incredibly responsive. Sit, lie, stay. She was great. We hadn't quite reached a level of backflips on demand, but um, we were getting there. She became a dog perfectly obedient to her masters. So then we bravely tried the unleashed walk again. Treats in the pocket, familiar instructions to stay close, and it worked. But guess what? As soon as those treats ran out, she was gone. She had never been obedient to a master after all. Once we had nothing beneficial to offer, her true motivations became clear. They were self-serving, they were conditional, and they were fleeting. We had been played. She wanted treats and worked hard to get them. But no treats, no sit, no lie, no obedience. As a side note, this is actually how we um, eventually got her to obey. Um, so, of course, we're not dogs, but similar to dogs, we obey only when there's some benefit for us. But the Bible calls us to something radically different, and I think radically better. In our passage today, Paul tackles the heart of obedience. He directs us to examine our motivations for obedience and specifically in a work context, and shows us how the gospel transforms our relationships as we grasp what eternity looks like with Christ. So let's pray. 
Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we submit our minds and our hearts to you over the next 30 minutes or so. Let my words not be mine but yours, and may each of us receive your truth with humility and a new perspective today, your perspective. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So before I jump in, there's a cultural aspect of this passage that we must address. In the original Greek, the word doulos is often translated as slave, but it actually covers a range of renderings from slave to bondservant to servant. And this depends on the context of the passage it is used in. The ESV Bible translation of Ephesians uh, 6, which is our passage today, uses the word bondservant. And a bondservant, I quote, um, was someone bound to serve his master for a specific, usually lengthy period of time, but also someone who might nevertheless own property, achieve social advancement, and even be released or, or purchase his freedom. This was very different to the history of brutal and dehumanizing chattel slavery in America. It is important to explore how Paul was using the word doulos in today's passage and how it would have been understood by the recipients of his letter in the church at Ephesus. A large variety of people could be a doulos. Beyond just domestic servants and manual laborers, also educated people such as doctors, teachers, administrators, um, they all, all also found themselves as indentured servants, often through having to settle a bad debt, being prisoners of war, or being purchased. W.L. Westerman writes, The institution of slavery was a fact of Mediterranean economic life so completely accepted as part of the labor structure at the time that one cannot correctly speak of the slave problem in antiquity. So what is the Christian response? Let's go back to our passage. In verses 5 to 8, Paul is giving instructions to bondservants on how to be obedient and loyal workers for the sake of Jesus. Were Paul and the other New Testament writers not interested in condemning slavery openly and publicly? At least could Paul not have directly commanded Christian masters to free their bondservants? He could have, but he was thinking bigger picture. So here are three things Paul would have been considering. Firstly, Christian community lacked influence. They were a small minority practicing an illegal religion powerless to enforce large social political change. Abolishing slavery would have been impossible without the breakdown of society. Economically, Roman society was almost exclusively reliant on slavery, much in the same way that we now rely on machinery and technology. In such a societal structure, a mass increase in freed slaves would likely have resulted in many being condemned to a life of unemployment and poverty. Secondly, gaining freedom was expected and common. Roman slaves could expect to one day have an opportunity to be free. Masters frequently freed their slaves and set them up as skilled tradesmen or other professions. A slave released in this way had a future of opportunity, and it was often the case that he would eventually become wealthier than his master. So along this line of thinking, Paul advises the doulos in the Corinthian church to take any opportunity to gain his freedom. Finally, and most importantly, Paul had a greater plan. He wanted to transform hearts, minds, and power structures that were, that were and still are so dominant in humanity today. His plan was to radically shift the perspective of both masters and slaves so that societal change became inevitable through Jesus being reflected in every relationship within the church. This was radical back then, and it is radical as we apply it to our lives today. Let's take a look at what Paul's vision was for, the Christ, for Christian community. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, 
giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. How could slavery survive when masters and slaves were standing side by side singing to each other, reciting psalms and giving thanks to their God for all their blessings and submitting to each other? It's impossible. So now that we've established what the audience of Paul's letter to the Ephesians would have been hearing, let's apply it to New England in the 21st century. So, three points to explore today. The nature of obedience, the cost of obedience, and the rewards of obedience. First point, the nature of obedience. So, we all work in one way or another. We work for good reasons, income, security, retirement, options in life, or if we're very lucky, fulfillment and a sense of achievement. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So God also calls us to work so that we can provide for, fa- for our families and provide for those in need. Work is good. God created us in his image and he has been working from the, before the beginning of time. God cares about our work and our work is part of his plan. No one is exempt from this. In the very first verse of today's passage, Paul's words would have been shocking to his audience at the time. Verse 5 reads, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. No one in Roman culture at the time would have even spoken about bond servants, let alone directly address them before addressing their masters. Paul's intention is clear. By addressing bond servants, he's making a loud and bold proclamation. Every person from every walk of life is part of God's kingdom plan for work. We're also always accountable to someone in authority over us. This means we're expected to be obedient follow rules, and meet certain expectations. If we don't, there will eventually be consequences, perhaps discipline or conflict, or more seriously, a loss of income or the loss of a job. It could be feelings, shame, guilt, anger, or resentment. Such consequences can have a profound influence on how we approach work, the decisions we make, and the reasons we choose to obey. So this is where Paul challenges us to turn our eyes and hearts to, obey, to obeying Jesus as our ultimate master and allowing that obedience to be mirrored in our submission to our human masters. Let's look at verse 5 again. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And then in verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So what does obedience look like? Without a focus on our ultimate master, Jesus Christ, obedience is always conditional. It's me-centered and it's, and it's reluctant. Think about your work and the things you expect in return for your time and effort. If your ultimate objective at work is to keep earning your salary, get get that promotion or on a deeper level, continuously get affirmation from your boss or peers, your obedience will always be conditional on those outcomes. My first job out of college was as an analyst at a multinational consultancy. This company had a very well-structured career path for analysts, and from day one, you were taught the formula for promotion every two years. Working hard was not the main element of that formula. If you wanted to get a good performance review and stay on track for for promotion, you're advised to focus on two things. Firstly, sell yourself. Talk about yourself, your achievements, your strengths, and offer to do extra work with senior people outside of your immediate circle of colleagues. Even more importantly, a lot of this selling yourself happens socially, so to be successful, you really had to attend 
um, after work social events to brush shoulders and gain favor from those senior people. I was being obedient with the expectation of favor with influential people. Secondly, you are strongly advised to beef up your resume with volunteering activities, showing you're an active participant in the local community. In principle, volunteering to meet the needs of your local community is not a bad thing. But where was my heart as I participated? What were the fruits of my volunteering activities? There were none. As soon as I got that promotion, I never volunteered again. Community service never became a way of life, but simply a means to an end. I was ticking a box, being obedient for personal gain. Verse 6 today tackles this directly. It says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. And as I've prepared for this sermon over the past few weeks, the biggest thing that I've been convicted of by the Holy Spirit has been that phrase in verse 6, not by the way of eye service. Many historians believe that Paul actually coined that phrase, and I find it profound. Everything about my corporate career has been about rendering eye service. But my true heart has been totally exposed to me as I've reflected on these verses. I am saddened when I think of all the times that I've been the perfect employee in front of my boss and then complained, scorned, or gossiped about him to others just minutes later. Our hearts are dark when we obey earthly masters for earthly gains. Our call is to kingdom obedience, and it is unconditional based on faith. Paul gives instructions on obedience to the Ephesians in verses 5 to 7, and then immediately follows up with verse 8, which says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or is free. That word knowing is key in this verse. Obey because you know what God has in store for you. Know what he wants to give you as his child and as his co-heir with Jesus. Let's look at another example in the Old Testament, in the account of Abraham's obedience. In Genesis 12, verse 1, God commands Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then in the immediate verses that come next, God attaches a promise to that command. He says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God wanted the worth of his promises to so capture Abraham that he wanted to obey. If we know God's promises, then, out, then the outworking of our obedience in the workplace looks very different to the self-serving, personal outcomes-driven obedience our brokenness wants to shackle us to. Obeying those in authority over us as if we are obeying Jesus himself is a heart-led decision based on knowing what he has in store for us. John Piper puts it beautifully. I've paraphrased his words for us. He writes, he says, Christian workers, your submission to your master is totally different than the submission of all other workers. It is only required and only good as obedience to Christ. You are serving the Lord and not man. That obligation is nullified. There is no inherent authority in a human master over a worker. All is from Christ and all is for Christ. When you submit to your human master, you submit to Christ. And in that submitting, you are free. This is the nature of the obedience we are called to. Second point today, the cost of obedience. 
So what is stopping us from wholeheartedly and sincerely being obedient? As with every aspect of our relationship with God, there are parts of us we need to sacrifice if we are to submit fully to His will and plan for our lives. There are costs that come with humbling ourselves before our Creator. Verse 9 of our passage reads, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that He who is both their master and yours is in heaven and and there is no partiality with Him. In Roman society, it was believed that fear produced greater loyalty and therefore more obedience from slaves or or bondservants. But Paul throws out this worldly perspective of forced obedience and commands those Christians in positions of authority to reject all forms of manipulating, demeaning, or terrifying slaves by threats. Christian masses are commanded to relinquish control. Rather than getting the results of performance you desire, by any means possible, prioritize a Christ-like encouraging and great, graceful attitude to those under your authority. And what a challenge that is in the Western world. Everything in our culture says that our personal control of the variables of this world is the key factor in making us successful, happy, and comfortable. We are called to prioritize the encouragement, growth, and elevation of others. This takes time, patience, and longer-term perspective on what success looks like. It is the decision to prioritize a healthy, 40-hour work week for your employees instead of pressuring them to work 80-hour weeks to meet unrealistic targets. It is the choice to encourage, teach, and patiently mentor someone until they improve at a certain task, even if it means you have to wait longer for that high level of output, or even if it means you have to do it for yourself for a time. It means that the outcomes you prioritize are defined by your view of eternity at the expense of immediate results. Paul says that as Christians, we must be transformed in our thinking. He has already instructed bondservants on how to obey from the heart and now commands masters to treat their workers with a Christ-like heart too. He's essentially saying, sacrifice control of your professional success to instead prioritize reflecting the heart and character of Jesus Christ to those that work for you. The heart of obedience means sacrificing control of outcomes. Kingdom obedience also costs us our pride respecting and obeying our masters and our subordinates as we would Christ has significant implications. What if your boss is rude, inconsiderate, self-serving, and doesn't deserve respect? Or what if one of your team members is lazy, talks badly about you behind your back, or is constantly undermining your authority? Let's look at verses 6 and 7 again for for context. So not by way of eye service as people pleases, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Doing the will of God from the heart as we obey our ultimate master in our workplaces is hard. We are called to give up something of ourselves to approach obedience in this way. We will sometimes give up on being right, and we will often give up our rights. Our rights to be respected, our rights to be heard, our rights to be rewarded fairly for our efforts and good results. Sometimes we will suffer outright loss because we choose to be obedient as if to Jesus himself. But there is beautiful hope. In in 1 Peter 2 verse 20, we are reminded that God counts the costs we suffer for obeying as a credit against us. He writes, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? 
this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. There are no deeds, words, or thoughts that go unnoticed by our Father in heaven, and He is so pleased when we trust Him enough to bear the cost of obeying Him above all else. Obedience to God not only costs us personally in the many ways we've discussed so far, but also costs those around us, the people that we love and care about most. When we decide to follow God's will above everything else, people are affected by our obedience to Him. I recently read a story about a pastor, uh, that a pastor shared about the time in his life he first felt his calling to, to go into full-time ministry. He and his wife had discussed and prayed about this decision, and they had accepted a position at a church across the country. This pastor recalls a conversation he had with, it, with his parents when he broke the news to them. His father's first words were a question. So I won't get to see my grandchildren grow up? You can tangibly feel that grandfather's pain in his words. That that pastor's obedience to the call of God was costly and painful to his parents. So what about the decisions you need to make in your workplace? Think about the implications of choosing to obey God by protecting and refusing to scapegoat one of your junior employees for a costly error he made. Your performance review, your bonus, or even your job could become at risk for doing that. There would be personal costs, but also significant costs to your family. Unemployment is not an easy situation to be in when you have a family to feed or a mortgage to pay. That single act of obedience could have multiple impacts on your family members. Oswald Chambers summarizes this perfectly. He writes, Because we are so involved in the universal purposes of God, others are immediately affected by our obedience to Him. We can disobey God if we choose, and it will bring immediate relief to the situation, but it will grieve our Lord. If, however, we obey God, He will care for those who have suffered the consequences of our obedience. We must simply obey and leave all the consequences with Him. Chambers then concludes, Beware of the inclination to dictate to God what consequences you would allow as a condition of your obedience to Him. The costs of obedience to Jesus are high and they are uncomfortable. But the cost of his obedience to the Father was infinitely higher. It cost him everything so that we could have all of him forever. Our last point today, the rewards of obedience. Verse 8 reads, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Paul is clear here, and he reinforces the message of reward found throughout the Old and New Testament. Obedience to God is necessary, but it is also not a burden for those who love Him. We are encouraged to be motivated into obedience by the rewards God promises us. But what are these rewards? We are assured that following His ways will reward us in countless ways. Psalm 19 captures this well. The psalmist writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So obeying God will revive our souls. It will make us wise, enlighten us, and make our hearts rejoice. Can you imagine feeling all those things? Can you imagine how your outlook on life, work, and other people would be shaped by this? Not only is this possible, but God promises us these personal rewards if we are obedient to Him above all other things. 
The rewards are there for us to grasp. The costs are worth it. Not only will He reward us, but in the final verse of our passage, we are told that He will do so with absolutely no partiality. We can be confident that in His eyes, we are each of infinite worth, and He wants to reward us all as co-heirs with Christ. What an unbelievable thing it must have been to hear for the bondservants of the church of Ephesus. They were the lowest of the low in Roman society, yet here is God telling them that their reward will be equal to any other believers, even those in authority over them. What a reward it is that we are assured of impartial treatment by the Creator of the universe. There is also a deep joy that comes with obedience to God's commands. Sacrificing ourselves may be difficult, humbling, and countercultural, but seeing others around us feel valued, thrive, and maybe even come to faith because we choose to love them as God loves them is infinitely and eternally rewarding. In John 15, Jesus' words are full of hope for our guarantee of joy. He writes, if you, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that, your joy may, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Obeying God allows us to rest in His love, and resting in God's love will complete our joy. Do you believe that God wants you to rest in His love? Are you willing to obey Him above everything else? Fullness of joy is promised to us only if we would submit to Him. Finally, we are promised the ultimate reward for our obedience to Him, eternity. We are promised a life living with the Father as His sons and daughters and all the inheritance that position comes with in heaven, according to our sacrificial obedience and our good works. Matthew 16 says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. God wants to shower us with a fullness of joy, an inheritance for all our good works done with an obedient heart, and he desperately wants us to enjoy eternity with him as his adopted children. He wants to be eternally connected to us. I pray that Jesus' words in John 14 will echo in your hearts as you leave today. He writes, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. God wants to make his home in you. What do you have to lose? Potentially everything, everything that's ever given you comfort, security, and self-worth. But what do you have to gain? You have to gain eternity. You are sons and daughters of the King of the universe, and He has promised you countless times that you will share in the eternal inheritance that He has prepared for those who love Him. Your whole identity and worth is found in Him who created you, in Him who sacrificed everything for you to be heirs to that inheritance in heaven. This is amazing news. Grasp it. Talk to God about it and let Him alone define who you are. Be obedient to those in authority over you in love and reverence for Him who created you. Sacrifice your pride and your rights and watch in awe as your Creator molds you into the person He designed and intended for you to be. Rejoice in the place He has reserved for you in eternity and the joy He wants you to experience there. Believe His promises. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you live in our hearts, that you want to be everything to us. Remove all barriers in each of our hearts and let us enjoy perfect relationship with you. Transform us to gladly and joyfully submit to you and to others in your name. Thank you that Jesus gave all of himself, was abused, mocked, and killed so that we can enjoy eternity with you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and show each of us what we must change and sacrifice to become empty to become empty vessels that you can use for your kingdom's glory. Amen.